Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innal hamdalillah nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruh wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina may yahdihillahu fala mudilla lahu wa may yudlilhu fala hadiya lahu wa ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lahu wa ashhadu anna muhammadan 'abduhu wa rasuluhu sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira amma ba'd my dear brothers and sisters assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh so today we're doing hadith number 20 this is the hadith عن ابي مسعود عقبه ابن عمر الانصاري رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ان مما ادرك الناس من كلام النبوه الاولى اذا لم تستحي فاصنع ما شئت رواه البخاري on the authority of Abu Mas'ud, Uqba ibn Amr al-Ansari, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him, who said, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, from the words of the previous prophets that the people still find are, if you feel no shame, then do as you wish. This hadith was narrated by Imam al-Bukhari. General comments on this hadith. This hadith talks about two main subjects. Subject number one was the continuation of the legacy of all of the prophets and how they all had similar messages and themes in terms of what they commanded the people with or forbade the people from. And then the second thing it talks about is the concept of modesty. Imam Nawawi rahimahullah when he commented on this hadith, he said that this hadith encompasses all of Islam. This hadith encompasses all of Islam. Who can explain that to me? Why would this hadith, a hadith about shyness and modesty, encompass all of Islam? Go ahead. It's because the hadith of the Prophet said, being I haven't been sent except to perfect good manners, and shyness and high comes under that concept. And also, if you're too shy, like you won't shy in front of Allah, right? So, like, you'll avoid sins because of that. Okay, so you're, you've given me half of the answer. You've given me half of the answer. There's another half that we need. You want to give it a second shot? <laughs> Let's come back to you though. Ayman, did you have your hand up? No? Did anyone else want to volunteer an answer? Tell us you can go again then, <laughs> Shama. You know that about completing half your deal marriage? Yeah. And I knew you'd somehow tie in marriage to this, <laughs> Mashallah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it because of that, because you're protecting your lower half, and that's protecting half your deal, and shyness that you be too shy to speak. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> you want to give it a third shot? <laughs> you could. So we've gotten the first half. Shyness prevents us from sinning, right? So doing bad deeds, shyness will prevent us from doing it. That's half of Iman right there. What is the other half of Iman? What is the other half of Iman? Half of Iman is staying away from bad deeds. So the other half of Iman is? Doing the good deeds, right? So when a person is shy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this falls under the same category that he will be shy not to do the good deeds. So when it comes time to do a good deed, he's going to do it. And that's what Imam An-Nawi rahimahullah is implying when he says that this hadith encompasses all of Islam. Because Islam is built upon two things, staying away from the bad deeds and doing the good deeds. So that's just a general introduction to the hadith. Now the rawi of this hadith, the narrator of this hadith, he was Abu Mas'ud Uqba ibn Amr al-Ansari. Uqba ibn Amr al-Ansari. So he was from the people of Medina. He was given a nickname or a title called Al-Badri, Al-Badri. Some of the historians understood from this title Al-Badri that he attended the Battle of Badr. But in reality, this is not true. The reason why he was given the title Al-Badri was that he lived in and around that area. And that, why he, that is why he was given that title of Badri. From the virtues of Uqba ibn Amr radiallahu anhu, 
was that when Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu left for the battle of Safin and eventually Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu was, was killed after that he left behind Uqba ibn Amr as the governor of Basra at that time. He left uh, Uqba ibn Amr as the governor of Kufa at that time. And Uqba ibn Amr, he actually died a little bit after that in the year 41 or 42. So just at the end of the Khilaf of Hassan radiallahu anhu, that is approximately when he died. Altogether, he narrated about 102 hadith. He narrated about 102 hadith. So this hadith, it starts off by saying, from the words of the earlier prophets that the people still find are. So meaning that Uqba ibn Amr is narrating from the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam a continuation in legacy from the previous Prophets. And I believe this is a very important point to understand, particularly as Muslims when we talk about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the average non-Muslim does not know about the continuation in legacy, that all of the Prophets were sent by the same God, they came with similar messages, and they were trying to promote the same sort of themes. So when you look inside the Quran, there are certain key words that almost all of the prophets used. From the key words that almost all of the prophets used were Fattakullah wa Ati'un. That have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obey me. So the two basic principles in Islam of having sincerity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then having an example to follow, having mutaba'a uh, or an example to follow of the messengers that came. Now here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is giving us a third example of what all of the Prophets came with. And that is to have shyness and modesty. A lot of people presume that shyness and modesty is just from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in reality, this is not the case. In reality, this is not the case. Shyness and modesty, it can be from the angels, it can be from the people around us, it can be from our elders. You know, there's a lot of things that one can be shy of. So this concept of what the prophets came with when they mentioned being shy, it was generally referring to two things. One, one being be shy of sinning in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the second concept of having and instilling good morals and manners inside of ourselves. Having and instilling good morals and manners inside of ourselves. So this is what the prophets generally came with. Now, how do we understand the actual crux of the statement? If you feel no shame, then do as you wish. If you feel no shame, then do as you wish. The scholars actually differed on three different opinions as to how this statement can actually be interpreted. Interpretation number one is that this statement is actually a threat. So you're speaking to someone and you give them a dare. It's like, I dare you to do this, you know, go ahead and do it. Or actually that might not even be a good example. A good example would be like, I tell Sajjad, you know, Sajjad, you know, go ahead and do this and see what happens to you, <laughs> right? Actually, I'm not going to give any more further examples, but you know, that's what it generally means. Like, go ahead and do this and watch what happens. So this is a threat from the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that when an individual feels no shyness, then he's going to do what he pleases, and then at that time, he should wait for bad consequences from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is what this statement actually means. And this is something that you actually find in the Quran, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells the disbelievers, you know, just be patient a little while longer, your compensation and punishment is coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So continue doing what you're doing, eventually it will be stopped. A second interpretation of this hadith is that this hadith is not an imperative or a command, but rather it is a factual statement. Rather it is a factual statement. So how is this a factual statement? 
It becomes a factual statement in the sense that if a person feels no shyness and modesty, then he will do as he pleases. He will do as he pleases. And Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, in this second interpretation, he actually has uh, you know, a lot of beautiful commentary where he talks about the state of the heart. And when you look at the linguistic interpretation of the term haya, which is you know, the term that is used for modesty and shyness, it comes from the same root word and the same essence of haya, which is life within of itself, right? So Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he starts off his discussion by saying that just like water is known as haya, which is known as life, because it brings life to the ground and the plants and vegetables and trees are allowed to grow, then haya, the modesty and shyness, this is the life of the heart. This is the life of the heart. And with each sin that it is committed, then the heart slowly starts to die. It slowly starts to die. Till eventually a time comes where there's no modesty and shyness left in the heart, and then thereafter, it will feel no shame in whatever the person does. It will feel no shame in whatever the person does. And this is actually a very scary point because a time will actually come where a person will not care what he does. And this is seen in the hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, where he says that all of my ummah will be forgiven with the exception of one group of people. And they are al-mujahideen. They are the ones that make their sins known to the people. So they committed a sin at night and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala covered that sin and hid that sin from the people. And then they wake up in the morning and they come to the people and they say, do you know what I did last night? I did so and so. And they uplifted the sitr that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had placed, the covering that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had placed upon that sin. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive all people except for those individuals that have lost all shyness and feel no shame in telling the people the bad deeds that they have done. In telling the people the bad deeds that they have done. A third interpretation of the hadith, and this is the last one, that it indicates a form of permissibility. It indicates a form of permissibility. So look at the wording of the hadith. If you feel no shame, then do as you wish. Where is the form of permissibility in this? Go ahead. It's not a command. Then do as you wish. That is a command. If you feel it's, not like a, it's almost like an advice rather than a command. Okay. But now we're trying to look at, in this statement, do as you wish. How is it showing us permissibility in this statement? It is permissible to do as you wish. There's like a clause there. What is the clause? Actually, no, it's not. A person does not need to know what is halal and haram to do as you wish. And we'll come to see that. So there's something else that's at play over here. Go ahead. There's a condition. Which is? If you have no shame. Now tie it all together. So what is like the sentence I'm looking for in terms of permissibility? Basically, if you've lost all sense of shame, then immediately you'll have a person that does what they wish. Okay, so that's going back to the second interpretation. I'm talking about uh, it becomes permissible to do what you want as long as you are not afraid of the consequences. Close enough. I'll accept that from you. Close enough. Good. So the third interpretation is that this is a statement of permissibility, meaning that if you want to see what is permissible and not permissible, then look at if you feel comfortable doing this in front of people. If you do not feel comfortable doing this in front of people and you feel shy and ashamed, 
then understand that this is not from Islam and then this deed shouldn't be done. However, if you do feel shy and ashamed doing this in front of the people, then it's better to refrain from that and stay away from it. Now, what is the problem with this third opinion? We just discussed it in the second opinion. What is the problem with this third opinion? Go ahead. Exactly, the time eventually comes where a person will stop feeling shyness, right? So it shows us sort of the, the, the khalal or the, the, the lapse in, in, in judge or I guess conclusion with this third opinion. That this third opinion that while it, it seems very nice that you, know, it's, you have a general guideline that if you feel shy in front of people, then you know, uh, don't do that act, right? It shows you impermissibility. But we discussed in the second opinion that a time eventually comes where people will stop feeling shame. And just because a person doesn't feel shame at that time anymore, it doesn't mean that the act has now become permissible. It doesn't mean now that the act has actually become permissible. So in conclusion, all three of these opinions are valid and they all have you know, their virtues to them. The conclusion what we want to, to get from all of these interpretations is the fact that ultimately, Shyness is from Islam and that is what prevents us from doing bad deeds. Shyness is from Islam and that is what prevents us from doing bad deeds. Now, the concept of Haya, the concept of Haya. Amr ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, he summarizes our interpretation of Haya. He says, Haya leads to Wara and Wara leads to being conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let's explain what these words that are being used here. We already know what haya is. Wara. This is to make Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a priority. It means that you're not even going to do the smallest, shadiest thing. So if there's any doubt about something, you're, because of your consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you're going to stay away from it. So he goes on, and this is the exact quote. He says, if a person has little haya, he will have little wara. And the person who has little wara, then his heart has died. A person who has little wara, then his heart has died. So we were talking about how haya brings life to the heart. This is how it does so. That life of the heart is in its consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and its remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as soon as haya gets extracted from the heart, then the heart starts to die. Then the heart starts to die. Now, this concept of haya, what is important to understand is that this is one of the key distinguishing characteristics between humans and animals, between humans and animals. You look at an animal, it will eat, sleep, uh, you know, go to the bathroom, have its intimate relations, all in public, all in one area, not caring about you know, anyone or anything. And what makes us human is the fact that we feel shy to do these things in public. Like we were not going to go to the, to the bathroom in public. We know a person doesn't have marital relations in public. And this shows you how regressive our society is becoming. That while technologically we're advancing, we're actually regressing as a society. There's a... Actually, let me just finish my point and I'll get to the, the show that I was going to talk about. When you look at the story of Adam alayhi salam, after Adam alayhi salam, and his wife, they consume from the tree. One of the first consequences that they feel at that time is now they start to recognize their aura, right? They start to become cognitive of their aura, right? Before that, they weren't cognitive of, of their aura. But now they're taking the leaves uh, of the trees in paradise and they're trying to cover themselves. And this is a human characteristic that all of us will have that regardless of 
you know, how much immodesty may be in society, regardless of, you know, what type of background you come from, the average human being will feel shy walking clothesless in society, right? The average human being will feel shy walking clothesless in society. Now, let us get to the show that I was talking about. There's a, a TV station, Alhamdulillah, it's not openly accessible in Canada. It's called VH1. It's the equivalent of like a, a, a music station in the United States. Their hit show for this year is called Dating Naked. On how they will bring a man and a woman, Alhamdulillah, still a man and a woman, and you know, not something else. And the premise of the date is that they will record them dating naked. That, you know, you get introduced to one another and, you know, you're basically looking at each other naked. And subhanAllah, it shows you, you know, a massive problem in our society. When such shows are now openly being displayed on public TV, right? In the United States, this is public TV. It's not a subscription channel. It's not like a pay-per-view channel. This is public TV. It shows us that there is something really, really wrong in our understanding of morality and the way that we dictate our lives. There's a problem when, you know, uh, people who indulge in sin openly, you know, actors in these adult movies are getting paid more than teachers, right? There's a huge problem in society when this is what is actually happening. So this concept of haya, it leads us to a discussion of, is haya something that is naturally and innately there? And is it something that can be acquired? Is it something that can be acquired? So the first part is that yes, each and every one of us is born with shyness. This is a part of our fitrah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us this fitrah, this moral compass through which we do feel this natural shyness. And over time, based upon our surroundings, based upon the sins that we commit, based upon the people that we hang around with, the things that we expose ourselves to, that level of modesty will increase and decrease. Now once modesty is decreased, can it actually be increased? And the answer is yes. Modesty actually can be increased. And Ibn Rajab rahimahullah, one of the famous commentary, uh, commentators on Imam Nawi's 40 hadith, he mentions three things that increases a person's highness. Three, uh, shyness. Three things that increases a person's shyness. Number one, it is to constantly and frequently remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Constantly and frequently to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's take a practical example of this. A practical example of this is that the individual gets into the habit of saying Bismillah before he does anything and everything. So he's opening the door, he says Bismillah. He's taking a drink of water, he's saying Bismillah. A person who naturally says Bismillah before he does anything. Now he's about to embark upon a sin. And he says, Bismillah. What is that going to do? It will prevent him from committing that sin. So the more a person has the habit of remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the less likely he is to commit that sin. Number two, he mentions remembering the frequent blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As human beings, we hate to disrespect and show disrespect to the hands that feed us, right? So anytime someone does a good favor to you, part of human nature is that you want to reciprocate that kindness. So when an individual recognizes the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he starts to hate to sin against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is interesting because this ties us into the relationship of modesty and its relationship with shirk and tawheed. 
and its relationship with shirk and tawheed. Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, when he was asked to describe, you know, what is shirk, he said, أَن تَجْعَلَ لِلَّهِ نِدًّا وَهُوَ الَّذِي خَلَقَكَ That it is to create a rival and a partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while recognizing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that created you. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that created you. So similarly over here, Ibn Rajab is saying that shyness or lack thereof is that how dare you sin against the one that provides you everything that you ask for, right? How can you sin against the, 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 the one that provides you what you ask for? You can't. Con consciously, you just won't want to do it. And this ties into the first part that in order to sin against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you actually have to forget or become ignorant of who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. It is not possible that a person is cognitive of who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in terms of his power and his might and his greatness, in terms of the many blessings that he has given us, and yet still sin against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The third thing he mentions, and the last way that he mentions, is that you hang around the people of modesty. You hang around the people of shyness. Now who can give me a proof from this from the seerah? The very famous hadith. Go ahead. Fantastic. So Aisha radiallahu anha, she is monitoring the actions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the um, lower thigh of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is uncovered. Okay? And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu comes in, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam does not uh, adjust the way that he's sitting. Umar radiallahu anhu comes in, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam does not adjust the way that he is sitting. And then finally Uthman radiallahu anhu, he comes in and then all of a sudden the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam straightens himself and fixes his izar, fixes his lower garment. Aisha radiallahu anha, she asked him, O Messenger of Allah, Abu Bakr came, Umar came and you didn't move. Yet when Uthman radiallahu anhu comes, why did you move at that time? And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he says, Ala astahi min rajulin tastahi minhu al-malaika. That should I not be shy and modest in front of an individual whom the angels are even shy of. Whom the angels are even shy of. So it shows you the, the level of modesty that Uthman radiallahu anhu had. So much so that he inspired the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi to increase his own modesty from time to time. To increase his own modesty from time to time. So this shows us that when you hang around with shy people and with modest people, then you start to imitate their characteristics as well. You hang around with, with lewd people, people who do not care about shyness and modesty, and naturally you develop those attitudes as well. Now you'll notice in our day and age, this concept of shyness and modesty is slowly being lost in the sense that people no longer understand what shyness and modesty is. That yes, there's a required level of modesty and shyness, and that is to stay away from sin. But there's a higher level of modesty and shyness, which is just to keep yourself extra covered, right? To keep yourself away from any form of doubt, to keep yourself away from any form of lewdness. And you find many examples of this, that Musa alayhi salam, and you know, from the virtues of Musa alayhi salam is that he was known to be extremely modest and shy. So much so that he would never show off his arms, right? You would never see the skin on his arms. That even when he would bathe, sometimes he would keep his clothes on to go and bathe. 
And then the people started saying, you know, the reason why Musa salam, he doesn't show his skin is because he is a leper. That he has a, you know, a, a, a malfunction in his, skill, in his skin and that is why he doesn't want to show off his skin. And this became such a, a rampant um, rumor in the community and the society that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided to defend him. Does anyone know what happened? What happened? Fantastic. So there's actually two narrations to the story. One is that the rocks uh, started moving away when Musa salam had taken his clothes off so that he would become exposed to the people. And another narration that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentions is that the, uh, the ants started to walk away with the clothes of Musa salam. And then Musa salam eventually had to, to chase the ants to get his clothes back. And this shows that Musa salam, this was from his modesty. When you look at how the companions describe the modesty of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, they say the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was more modest than the virgin bridegirl. Was more modest than the virgin bridegirl. And the virgin bridegirl, she's so modest and shy that even when she's asked, you know, are you ready to get married? Her silence is her acceptance, right? She doesn't even say yes, she's ready to get married because she's too shy to, to even speak. And they describe the modesty of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, to be even greater and more than that. Now let us talk about the importance and virtues of Haya, the importance and virtues of Haya. And we want to take uh, four different hadith that talk about the virtues of Haya and then explain them. Hadith number one. الْحَيَاءُ وَالْإِيمَانُ قُرِنَا جَمِيعًا فَإِذَا رُفِعَ عَهْدُهُمَا رُفِعَ الْآخِرُ So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, Haya and Iman are two companions that go together. If one of them is lifted, the other is also lifted. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, derives a direct correlation between Haya and Iman. And how if one goes up, the other goes up. And if one goes down, the other must go down as well. Now how do we understand Haya and Iman over here? This goes back to our earlier discussion. Haya over here is understood as staying away from sin. And Iman is understood as doing virtuous and good deeds. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says that if you are becoming prone to sins, then the good deeds that you do will naturally go down. However, if you fight off the temptation to do those sins, then even your good deeds will even go up. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah commenting on this hadith, he says, the best way for an individual to increase his, his iman is to prevent himself from doing the sins that he commits. Is to prevent himself from the sins that he commits. Sufyan al-Thawri uh, rahimahullah, when he talked about the times where he wasn't able to pray Qiyamul Layl. He says, I was prevented from praying Qiyamul Layl, standing during the night due to the sins that I committed during the day. So due to a lack of modesty in the day, he is unable to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the night. And as soon as he finished the issue that he was having, then all of a sudden he's able to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the night as well. So that is the relationship with Haya and Iman. Number two, is that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, Al-Imanu bid'u wa sab'una, aw bid'un wa sittuna shu'ba, fa'afdaluha qawlu la ilaha illallah, wa adnaha imatutu al-adha anit tariq, wal-hayau shu'batun min al-Iman. So the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, Iman has 70 some odd or 60 some odd branches. The most virtuous of them is the statement that there is none worthy of worship except Allah, and the slightest of them is to remove something harmful from the road. And haya, modesty is a branch of Iman. 
So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says Al-Haya'u, uh, sorry, Iman is divided into 70 or 60 odd branches. And Allah knows best, the narration of 70 seems to be stronger and appropriate for this context. Why? Because generally when the term 70 is used, it doesn't mean just 70, it means that there are many, many, you know, of them. So if you look inside the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that even if you were to seek forgiveness for the, for the hypocrites and the disbelievers 70 times, Allah would not forgive them. So does that mean if He was to ask 71 times that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not forgive them? No, because the point of 70 is not the actual number, but it is to show that there are many burning branches. So when you look at virtuous and good deeds, we learn that the, the, the good doors to good deeds are many, many. That they're not just a few. The highest of them is the statement of La ilaha illallah. Why is the highest of Iman the statement of La ilaha illallah? Who can explain that to me? Why is the highest of Iman the statement of La ilaha illallah? Yes and no. There's more to it than that. Go ahead. You can't have Iman without La ilaha illallah. That is definitely very true. But why does that make it the highest form of Iman? Go ahead. There's no action except it, except it is action of worship, except it's for the sake of Allah. It's for the sake of Allah, so that's why it's the highest. I don't remember that the answer was in light of guidance. The answer was in light of guidance in 2011. <laughs> Let us go back to our notes and look it up, inshallah. So I think generally you guys are, are all on, uh, along the, the, the same lines that this statement of La ilaha illallah, it doesn't represent just a statement, right? It represents our submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It represents the fulfillment of our creation. It represents the fulfillment of why the messengers were sent. It represents why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the books. It represents why we struggle and strive hard in this dunya. All of those encompass the statement of La ilaha illallah. So La ilaha illallah is not just a statement, but it is a way of life, right? So people often get thrown off, but you know, what's so significant about the statement? La ilaha illallah is not just a statement. When you study the, the, the um, what is the word I'm looking for? The conditions of La ilaha illallah, Part of it is a sidq, wal-amalu bih, is being truthful and, and acting upon it, right? So it's not just a statement, but it's developing it as a way of life. And eventually it comes down to that with la ilaha illallah, your deeds are accepted, you are entered into paradise. Without la ilaha illallah, your deeds are rejected and you're thrown into the hellfire. Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, and the lowest part of it is to remove something harmful, from the pathway, is to remove something harmful from the pathway. The scholars understood this part of the hadith to mean that it is not specifically removing the harm from the pathway, but it is removing any harm in general, right? So to remove even the smallest harm from someone is considered a virtuous and good deed. So you see a, floor, a spot on the floor that is wet, you dry it up so that no one slips on it. You see a banana peel on the street, you pick it up, so that no one slips on it. And in fact, there's a, a beautiful story from one of the students uh, when he was studying in Medina. That when he was in studying in Medina, he's sitting with his teacher in the car and they're, they're on their way home. 
And you know, typical driving in Medina, everyone's driving like 110, 120 kilometers. It's like a student zone, there are kids everywhere, no one cares. So they're driving home, and then all of a sudden, the teacher screeches the car, breaks the car, and the student goes flying right into like the windshield and he protects himself. And while he's like, you know, gathering himself, the teacher goes out of the car, does something, comes back into the car, says, Salaamu Alaikum, and they start driving again. The student, perplexed, when he arrives home, he's like, look, Sheikh, I don't mean any disrespect, and I don't want to pry, but I need to ask you, you know, what was it that you did when you got out of the car, when you just jammed your brakes, right? It was like such a, a strange experience. And then he tells the student, do you know what the biggest blessing is in the hereafter? And the student, out of his respect, he said, no, you know, please inform me. He says the biggest blessing is to see the beautiful face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the individual does not know what deed he may do that will allow him to spend an extra minute, an extra hour, an extra day in the company of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he had seen a bottle on the side of the road and he thought to himself that what if this bottle, someone drives over it and it ruins their tire, what if the heat you know, uh, explodes the bottle, it could cause possible damage. So he thought to himself, subhanAllah, you know, why not remove it from the path? But I want you to look at the mentality and the attitude. That why are we doing these small little deeds that no one else would pay attention to? We do them because we never know what that deed is that will allow us to spend an extra minute, an extra hour in the company of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi called the lowest form of Iman. Then we conclude with this hadith where the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi says, وَالْحَيَاءُ شُعْبَةٌ مِنَ الْإِيمَانِ And modesty and shyness is one of the branches of Iman, is one of the branches of Iman. The lesson we derive from this is that one of the ways we get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just like with the statement of La ilaha illallah, just like with moving something harmful from the path, is by instilling ourselves with modesty. Just like we do those deeds to get closer to Allah, then even a person instilling modesty inside of himself can get him closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hadith number three. الْحَيَاءُ مِنَ الْإِيمَانِ وَالْإِيمَانُ فِي الْجَنَّةِ وَالْبَذَاءُ مِنَ الْجَفَاءِ وَالْجَفَاءُ فِي النَّارِ The Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, Haya is a part of Iman and Iman is in paradise. Lewdness is a part of hardness of the heart and hardness of the heart is in the fire. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, tells us that modesty leads a person to paradise just like lewdness leads a person to the hellfire. The wording of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam which says وَالْبَذَاءُ مِنَ الْجَفَاءُ وَالْجَفَاءُ فِي النَّارِ Bada that means to become lewd, to become, you know, uh, inconsiderate of how you present yourself to people. That is what bada is. مِنَ الْجَفَاءُ This is from uh, antipathy. When you stop caring, you know, towards anything that's happening. Right? A person becomes uh, apathetic towards something when he long, no longer cares about it. Right? The world can be falling down, it's collapsing, he has no care or concern whatsoever, he has become apathetic to it. This is what Jaffa is, a person becoming apathetic. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is saying that when shyness and modesty is taken away from the slave, the person will start to become apathetic towards people and towards the world. He will have no concern about it. He will have no concern about it. And then the last hadith that we will discuss 
is the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saying إِنَّ لِكُلِّ دِينٍ خُلُقًا وَإِنَّ خُلُقَ الْإِسْلَامِ الْحَيَاءُ Every religion has a particular manner or characteristic and the characteristic of Islam is Haya. The characteristic of Islam is Haya. So you'll notice that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in several hadith, he uses this approach in language where he talks about the most important description of it and calls that by its name. So for example, when we talk about Tawbah, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu says, An-Najmu Tawbah, that feeling remorse and regret, then that is repentance to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Even though there's more to repentance than it, its main component is remorse and regret. Al-Hajju Arafah, that the Hajj is Arafah. There's more to Hajj than just Arafah, but the main component of Hajj is Arafah. Similarly over here, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying that every religion, it has a key characteristic, and the key characteristic of Islam is shyness and modesty. Meaning that yes, there are many other characteristics that a Muslim should have, but from the foremost of them is to have Haya. The foremost of them is to have Haya. And this is very you know, significant to look at, that if our friends were to describe our key traits and to describe our characteristics, how many of us would have shyness and modesty in the top three of them? How many of us would have shyness and modesty as a top three of them? The reality is, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, for the vast majority of us, if not all of us, shyness and modesty wouldn't be you know, in our top three. In fact, shyness and modesty you know, is not even part of the vocabulary that we use anymore in this day and age, right? So it is something as Muslims that we take very, very seriously, and it is something that we definitely have to revive. Something that we definitely have to revive. Now, with one of the last parts of our discussion before we conclude uh, for Salat al-Maghrib, is shyness and modesty as one of the characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Shyness and modesty as one of the characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shy and modest? And the answer is yes. Let us look at how. Three different ways. In Allah azza wa jal hayyiyun sitirun. يُحِبُّ الْحَيَاءَ وَالسَّتْرَةَ فَإِذَا اغْتَسَلَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلْيَسْتَتِرَ That verily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the attribute of great modesty and concealment and He loves modesty and concealment. Therefore, if any of you is going to wash himself, he should conceal himself. And it was based upon this hadith that the scholars of the past considered it mandatory that when you take a shower and when you take a bath, that you cover and conceal yourself. Now obviously in our day and age, this is not directly applicable because we don't no longer take showers and baths in rivers and in lakes, right? We have our own private bathrooms. It has uh, you know, a screen around it. Even our bathrooms have door. No one can see it. So therefore it is permissible to take a, a shower without any clothes on. And you know, it's not considered sinful whatsoever. Now the point here is that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam called Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala by two of his names. Number one is Hayyiyun. Hayyiyun coming from shyness and modesty. Hayyun meaning coming from life, right? So understand the distinction. So when you say, Ya Hayyu Ya Qayyum Bi Rahmatika Astaghith, you're using Hay meaning coming from life, the ever living. When you say Hayyiyun, then this is coming from shyness and modesty. And this too is one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then number two, the second name he uses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Sitirun. 
And this is a discussion amongst the scholars that discuss the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But they discuss that As-Sattar is actually not one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As-Sattar is not one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is in fact As-Sittir. If you look in the Quran and you look in the, the narrations of the Prophet wasallam, you don't actually find the word Sattar, but you find the word Sittir. So someone that's interested in naming their children, they should name their child Abdus Sittir as opposed to Abdus Sattar. Abdus Sattar is still valid because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a Sattar, but it is a name that is not found inside of the Quran and Sunnah within of itself. It is a name that is not found in the Quran and Sunnah within of itself. So here the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam affirms these two names and these two attributes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So that is the first form of modesty and shyness of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Second form of modesty and shyness of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is the fact that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala Himself has a hijab that He takes, right? Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has a hijab of light that prevents the creation from seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Aisha radiallahu anha, she asked the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, did you see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, no, Allah had a hijab of light that prevented me from seeing him. And that's why Aisha radiallahu anha was so adamant and strict on this, that she used to say that anyone who claims that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam saw Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, indeed he has lied, indeed he has lied. The third type of shyness and modesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who knows it? What is the third type of modesty and shyness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? I'll come to you if no one else gets it. Go ahead. Is it the modesty between 9-1? No. Go ahead. Fantastic. When the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises his hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is shy to turn the slave empty-handed. Is shy to turn the slave empty-handed. And this is the third type of shyness that is mentioned in the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. that when we raise our hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of his shyness and modesty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never turns our hands away empty-handed. Now I want to share a beautiful passage uh, from Ibn al-Qayyim uh, about this concept of shyness with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He, uh, rahimahullah, he says, whoever has the same attribute as one of the attributes of Allah, although the nature of the attributes are completely different, that attribute will lead the person by its tight reins. It will allow him to enter upon his Lord and bring him closer to his mercy. He will become beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is because Allah is merciful and He loves those that are merciful. He is generous and loves those that are generous. He is the all-knowing and He loves those that are knowledgeable. He is the strong and He loves the strong believer who is more beloved to Him than the weak believer. He is Hayyiyun, the one who has extreme modesty and He loves the people of Haya. He is beautiful and He loves the people of beauty. He is odd and he loves the people who perform the prayer with odd numbers of rak'ah, meaning that they pray the witr prayer. So Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he shares this beautiful reflection that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has certain attributes that when we try to instill them within of ourselves, we actually become more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he lists quite a few of them, showing mercy to people, being generous, uh, becoming knowledgeable, and he mentions specifically being modest. That all of these things, when a person uh, acquires them, while these are attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and its reality is known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, as humans, when we acquire these attributes, we actually become closer and more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And then let us conclude with our last point of discussion and that is, is there such a thing as bad haya, as bad modesty and shyness? And the answer to that is yes. There are two types of shyness and modesty that are actually considered dispraiseworthy. Dispraiseworthy, that they're actually considered bad to have these characteristics. The two types of modesty that are discouraged and are, are in fact sinful at times. Number one is that when it prevents an individual from enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. So time for Salah comes, you're with your friends, you go and pray by yourself, but you don't command them to pray with you, right? You see one of your close relatives, you know that he's drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, perhaps even doing drugs, and when he does them in front of you, you think to yourself, but he's my elder, it wouldn't look right if I said something. This type of modesty is actually discouraged. This type of modesty is actually <coughs> discouraged and should not take place, and should not take place. There's a beautiful narration by Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. He says, Verily fear of the people must not keep one from speaking a truth he knows. After narrating this hadith, Abu Sa'id said, We have seen things, but we feared the people. And then he started to cry. And then he started to cry. It shows you that subhanAllah, even the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, that is, it's human nature to feel afraid. It is human nature to feel afraid. But part of one's shuja'a, one's of, part of one's courage, is that at the end of the day, one should only be afraid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not of the people. And that is why the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he actually describes the highest form of jihad, what does he say? He says the highest form of jihad is to speak a truthful word in front of a tyrannical leader. That is the, the highest form of jihad in terms of the highest form of courage that a person can have. That speaking a truthful word in front of a tyrannical leader. So a bad form of shyness is that you think that, you know what, my elder, what will the people think, I shouldn't speak out. That is considered dispraiseworthy. And Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah, he says, in fact, this is not modesty and shyness. This is cowardice and treachery. Cowardice because you're a coward to speak the truth. And treachery because you've taken a covenant from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and fear Him alone. But now you're fearing the, fe the people more than you fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second type of modesty that is considered sinful and dispraiseworthy is the modesty that prevents one from seeking knowledge. Is a modesty that prevents one from seeking knowledge. So a person has a very important question to ask, but due to their shyness, they don't ask it. They think it might be inappropriate to ask such a question. When in fact Aisha radiallahu anha, she said that how amazing were the, the women of the Ansar, that they didn't feel any shyness in asking the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And it was in fact due to their not feeling shyness in this matter that we learned so many elements of tahara and you know what to do after a man has relations with his family and how one should clean themselves after they go to the bathroom. Because this is a part of human life. So there is no shyness and modesty in this. So when someone has a question of those, uh, of those matters, one should be respectful in terms of how he approaches it, but it shouldn't lead a person to not asking the question. It shouldn't lead a person to not asking the question. And the last thing I will mention about this hadith, the last thing I will mention about this hadith, is that if you look in all of Imam Nawi's uh, 42 hadith, you come to see that the statements of the Messenger of Allah are very, very small and short. 
yet the meaning behind them is very very profound and this is seen in particularly in this hadith right? if you feel no shyness then do as you wish the commentators on Imam Anawi's 40 hadith they go out of their way to point this out that the reason why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, spoke such short and profound statements was so that it was easy for the people to remember. It was easy for the people to remember. And I think you know, from this hadith halaqa, alhamdulillah, we've taken quite a few hadith that are very, very short. We should take it upon ourselves to, to memorize these statements. That even if we don't know the Arabic language, it is a stepping stone towards learning it. That you have these small, easy to remember hadith that will not only increase your vocabulary of the Arabic language, but you're carrying a tradition of knowing the exact words and statements that the Messenger of Allah spoke. And you know what bigger honor and privilege is that for a Muslim that he's able to speak and say the same words that his Messenger spoke, right? So that's something important to keep in mind that I want to conclude with. Alhamdulillah, we have quite a few people who have become you know, regular in this halaqa. Even if you don't know Arabic, try to memorize the shorter hadith. Inshallah, you know, one day you have to give a reminder after salah, you have to give a Jum'ah khutbah, you know, you have your proof ready at hand right there. And inshallah, it'll go a long way in you getting closer to the Prophet through remembering his traditions and his narrations as well. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instills shyness into us and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala beautifies us with shyness and modesty and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes away from us the shyness and modesty that is dispraiseworthy and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives us for our shortcomings. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabiyyana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We will open up the floor for questions and answers insha'Allah ta'ala. Go ahead. Uh, two questions. Sure. Uh, one First question is, uh, in terms of mentioning someone else's mother, like uh, their name, uh -huh. uh, is it common to get like uh, a reaction out of it? You never ask how someone's wife is doing. Yeah. You never ask how someone's sister is doing. You never ask how someone's mother is doing. You just keep it general when you say, you know, كَيْفَ حَالُ أَهْلِكَ or كَيْفَ أَهْلُكَ You just keep it very general. Because in Arab tradition, it's, it's considered very, very impolite. You know, why are you asking about my mom? You know, what's your business with my mom? Right? So that's the angle that they're coming from it from. So is it considered a form of modesty? No, we just say that this is a form of culture. Whereas living in Canada, so how is your sister doing? How is your wife doing? No one blinks an eye twice at that, right? So this is more of a cultural thing that we don't say is good or bad, but it is something that, you know, it just varies from culture to culture. Wallahu right. alam. Yeah. Um, is it actually permissible to paraphrase a hadith? So, is your question, are we allowed to paraphrase hadith or were hadith paraphrased in, in tradition? Are we allowed to? Are we allowed to paraphrase hadith? Yeah. And the answer to that is yes. Uh, Imam Malik, rahimahullah, he established a sunnah of the muhaddithin mm -hmm. where sometimes, you know, a person doesn't have an opportunity to mention a long hadith. So you'll mention just a paraphrased version of the hadith 
And then he concludes by saying, Oh, kama qala nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And it is like as the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said. So if a person is to paraphrase hadith, he should always give that disclaimer, Oh, kama qala nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Wallahu ta'ala. Wa iya kakhi no problem, inshaAllah. Any other questions? Fantastic. Go ahead. Um, I'm not sure what you were discussing earlier than this, but I thought I would take this opportunity to, to ask you. Um, what's your opinion on men's trousers or lower garments being above the ankles? I know um, I recently was encountered with this discussion, um, and I did see a few debates on whether or not this should be, um, or men's should ankle trousers should be above the ankles or not. Fantastic. Um, so what's, what's, your, uh, what's your opinion? You know, when you asked me the question, I actually thought you were going to ask me what's your opinion on wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, that's such an easy answer. Alhamdulillah, you took it in another direction. Fantastic. So the issue of uh, men wearing their trousers above their ankles. This is uh, an issue that has been, um, you know, there is a valid difference of opinion on. And I want to emphasize that term, valid difference of opinion. So there's three main narrations that an individual has to know when discussing this topic. Narration number one, uh, which is mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, where the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, whatever is below the ankles shall be in the hellfire. Whatever is below the ankles shall be in the hellfire. Hadith number two is that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said that whoever wears his garment below his ankles with pride, then Allah will not look at him, purify him, or speak to him on the Day of Judgment. This hadith too is also found in Bukhari. The third hadith is the hadith of Abu Bakr anhu. When Abu Bakr anhu, he tells the Messenger of Allah O Messenger of Allah, I am unable to keep my garments above my ankle. And the Messenger of Allah responded by saying that, O oh, Abu Bakr, you don't have to worry about this because you're not someone that does it out of pride. So you had the scholars of hadith go one way and the scholars of fiqh go one way. So Imam al-Bukhari, Ibn Hajar, and other scholars of hadith, they went towards uh, you know, separation, where they said if a person wears his garments below his ankles, he is sinful, and if he wears it out of pride in his heart to show off how rich he is, then this becomes a major sin. Then this becomes a major sin. So for them, there is no station where having your pants below your ankles is something that is disliked. The vast majority of the fuqaha, the scholars of fiqh, they said in fact, Wearing one's trousers below one's ankles is, is just disliked. It's not haram, it's disliked. And they use the proof of the statement, the hadith of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. They use the hadith of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. The scholars of hadith responded to this by saying that this was something exclusive to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu because the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam knew the state of his heart. Whereas for the vast majority of us, we do not know really if we're doing out of pride or not. The safer thing to do, without a shadow of a doubt, is that if you can stay away from that which is even disliked, that is better. And I wish I had a pen and paper to, to draw this for you. Does anyone have a pen on them? Inshallah. And let me explain the, the, this mas'ala properly to you. Jazakallah khair. So, the biggest shoe I have ever seen in my life was Shaquille O'Neal. If you go to Foot Locker, they used to carry his shoe there. So, we're going to take Shaquille O'Neal's shoe today, inshallah, and give you guys an example. Okay, so this is Shaquille O'Neal's shoe over here, and this is Shaquille O'Neal's ankle. Okay, so when we talk about keeping your trousers above your ankle, the vast majority of people think that keeping the trousers above the ankle means that, that it has to be physically above the ankle. 
When you look at what the scholars of fiqh actually say, they say, no, this is not the case. Keeping the trousers above the ankle means keeping it above the lower part of the ankle. So that second line that is there and not the first line. Okay? So a lot of people think that, you know what, I'm wearing, as you can't see, is the second line over here, inshallah. I know even my diagram is really small. <laughs> but it's that second line over there, which is as long as it's not going below the second, the, 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 the bottom part of the ankle, you're still within the realm of this hadith. So a lot of people think that, you know what, I'm wearing a suit, it's going to look really awkward if I have my trousers above your ankles. And the answer is no, just keep it at that line. Right, just keep it at the level of your ankles and most shoes they come up to that level anyways so it'll cover the top of your shoe and you're not going to look weird and stick out. So that way you can implement the sunnah, stay away from possibly sinning and staying away from that which is disliked and at the same time you're not going to look awkward and strange. Wallahu ta'ala alam. I hope that answered your question inshallah. Last two questions and then we break for maghrib. I'm not even going to ask why are you wearing a costume, <laughs> but go ahead. What if you're wearing a costume and what happens? It has like long things and it's like a built-in sock like that. A built-in sock? It doesn't really have an exit, it just like... I'm not going to ask why you know what costumes are like. <laughs> Inshallah, let me explain two things. Number one is that the intricate details of Islam, young kids are not held accountable for as of yet. So in your situation, inshallah, the pen is still lifted on you. Enjoy any costumes you want. It's not a big deal, inshallah. Um, as for sajad, you know, that's a completely different matter. <laughs> but in that situation, it is perfectly fine, inshallah. And I think as you get older, hopefully you'll get out of the trend of wearing costumes, inshallah. Last question. Is there a point where something makruh becomes uh, sinful on you? For sure, definitely. So is there a time where something makruh becomes sinful? And the answer to that is two situations. Number one, a person continuously continues to do the makruh without trying to quit it. So at that time, they say la sagirata ma'al israr, that there's no continuation of small sin upon continuation. And this same thing over here applies over here, that once a person learns something is makruh, they're allowed to fall into it from time to time, but it is not something they should do uh, habitually or continuously. Number two is if a person wants to intentionally embark upon the makruh, to show that you know he doesn't care that it's makruh, right? So with that sort of attitude, then even something makruh can become sinful because of the attitude that comes with it. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shadun la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.